Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I've got a gut feeling about this podcast. The panel are terrific. It's going to be great. It's surprising how often we describe instinctive feelings, good or bad, by referring to our stomachs. And this goes back a long way. Here's Oxford neuroscientist Katerina Johnson on the Naked Scientist podcast. We think that a strong link between our gut and our brain evolved because ultimately a lot of information about our environment comes from our gut. So if we eat something dodgy or something, our brain really needs to um, know about it and needs to respond to keep us safe. Our gut can affect our brain, but also how we feel and our emotional state can in turn affect our gut. And one of the ways that this happens is that there's a vagus nerve. So this is a major nerve that travels uh, between our gut and our brain. And interestingly, actually, 90% of nerve fibres in the vagus nerve communicate in the direction from our gut to our brain. There's a wide spectrum of gut feeling. It can lead to wise judgments that rise above conflicting arguments, or it can disguise a stubborn refusal to listen to evidence. With me to discuss this topic are Catherine Arnold, former diplomat and master of St Edmunds College, Cambridge, Dr Julian Hargreaves, senior research fellow at the Wolf Institute, and Dr Kitty Alone, also from the Wolf Institute and a Naked Reflections regular. So, Kitty, is it all rooted, is psychology rooted in our stomachs? Well, there is a significant degree of association um, between the gut and the brain. In fact, it's sort of lovingly referred to as the gut-brain access. And and it's connected in several ways, so both sort of neurologically, biochemically, and also through the immune system. So yes, there is, from neurological point of view and the physiological point of view, a great degree of association between the two. From a psychological perspective, um, we're all sort of, always sort of hardwired to make snap judgments about people. And whether that's related directly to the gut is, is... uncertain but we definitely have a predisposition to making snap judgments certainly of other people because it helps us navigate a very complicated social world um, without putting too much effort into it if you like so it's easier for us to make a very quick snap judgment of somebody normally within one tenth of a second than it is to sort of deliberate and ruminate over every single individual that we encounter which would obviously be 
um, time-consuming, to say the least. So have you made any snap judgments this morning? Thousands of snap judgments. <laughs> um, I mean, we make snap judgments con- continuously. Our brain is processing. It's ticking over all the time. Julian? Yeah, I mean, there's um, the former director of Ipsos Mori, um, currently at um, King's College London, um, wrote a really interesting book called The Perils of Perception. He writes about why he thinks the public at large are wrong about nearly everything. And um, in the book, which is sort of quite light-hearted, and anyone who's familiar with applied statistics will know what a bacchanalian feast of unrivaled joy and hilarity it is. But um, in the book, he talks about the way that people overestimate lots of common figures. So the book says... It's a survey of Western Europe, and he says in it that people wildly overestimate the number of people over 65 in the population. We overestimate it by, uh, we get it wrong by uh, half. There are discrepancies between what people see as a social norm and their own behaviour. So they think it's uh, that the public consume far more uh, foodstuffs like sugar than the individuals do. And also people tend to overestimate things like the number of immigrants in society, the number of Muslims, the number of uh, Muslims that are likely to be in a certain amount of time. So we get all these things wrong. Catherine, does that uh, echo? I, I saw you nodding. Does that echo with your experience? Well, I think there are sort of so many things coming through here. I mean, the the public perception is an incredibly important part of that. I mean, if you're trying to frame policy for a society, you have to understand both what that society thinks, um, how it deviates from a statistical reality when it is something that can be quantified. And part of the role is to actually ensure that the decisions that are taken are based on on the facts, but that perception really matters. I mean, there is a classic phrase that perception informs reality. And if you ignore the perception, then the most beautiful piece of policy in the world founded on the most fantastic statistics and expertise is going to go nowhere. So you're almost riding two horses um, all the way through. But I think those are almost, it's not easy, but those are almost the easy problems. Uh, the, The complexity and where I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about how much we can rationalize something and how much we just have to at some point Uh, instinctively take a decision is when you have extremely complicated and complex decisions. Uh, If you look at foreign policy, for example, and you you take it at its most reduced form, um, which might be national interest, um, and then you allow that national interest in a globalised world often means that another country's interest is second, third, fourth, fifth order in your country's interest. You're so far away from being at um, the root the root influencer, that knowing whether you've taken the right or the wrong judgment quantifiably is frankly impossible. And so you are aggregating as much information as you possibly can and then taking the best decision. But there is no way, I don't think, of saying what is or was or could have been the best decision. But I'd love to hear um, from psychologists um, or the, the statistical side whether actually there is more that I could have been doing. I think the weakness of some of these attempts to show the public have misconceptions about certain things are that it sets up this kind of binary between rational and irrational or between sort of logical and emotional you know the head and the heart or the brain and the gut and I think that's a mistake as you've said you know in foreign policy issues that the the reality is a lot more complex and it's something actually Bobby Duffy's book picks up as well so he he writes about the fact that 
whilst people might have a sense of the levels of immigration into their own country that that are inaccurate, actually, the concerns about immigration tend to follow shortly after actual rises. So people's fears and concerns aren't themselves irrational, even if their sort of measurement of it is inaccurate. And I think that's something that statisticians, and I sort of count myself in that group partly, but I think it's something that is overemphasised a lot in statistics. And I think when you think about this kind of idea of um, rationality and irrationality, I think there's often a simplistic view of the Enlightenment, for instance, mm-hmm. and everything that follows that as being kind of logical and a sort of move away from um, mysticism or sort of the vagaries of pre-Enlightenment times. But actually, all the way through the period since the Enlightenment, I think there's been a sort of um, a play between the rational and the irrational. You look at industrialization and globalization. At the very moment that was happening, at the end of the um, 18th century and beginning of the 19th century, you would think that science was kind of winning in all realms. But you look at the worlds of art and culture and you see a reaction to science. Um, and as uh, William Davis said recently in the London Review of Books, um, the Enlightenment has always been haunted by the irrational. So you can think about people like William Blake or Wordsworth or Turner coming to uh, pre- uh, prominence at exactly the time you would think that those ideas would have been displaced by industry and science and, and rationalism. On occasion, I feel sorry for statisticians because um, human beings aren't really wired <laughs> to be that receptive to sort of hardcore statistics or numerical information. So you might well ask, well, what's the point of even bothering giving people the facts when they're much sort of more inclined to be led by what they consider to be an an attractive narrative or an emotive experience? Um, But of course, that's not to say that policy should just be based on people's emotions. Otherwise, you know, society would probably collapse within 20 minutes. But people find it very hard to cope with numeric information and of course if you think about the evolution of human cognition back in the ancestral evolutionary environment there was no sort of complicated statistics or numerical functions or whatever so people find it difficult and that's why I mean for example during the Brexit debate there were people who were given the facts it didn't alter their opinion or their beliefs at all Um, and that's obviously a it's quite troubling but b it's psychologically it's fascinating because you would expect if you were looking at a a rational model of the mind that just being given correct information would then allow you to update your beliefs but actually what seems to be the case is that people are much more led by emotive or intuitive um, triggers rather than statistical factual based information which is um interesting and also problematic. That's really interesting because one of the things I've always been struck by is that when something uh, is agreed at some form of societal level as a behavioural change we all need to make, we're actually really quite good, you may dispute this, but I think we're a lot better is probably a better way of putting it, at creating campaigns that respond to that emotion rather than the statistical reality and the obvious ones to think of uh, drink driving campaigns, um, lowering alcohol campaigns. But when we get to anything more complicated, I mean, you mentioned Brexit, um, neither side arguably um, tethered fact to narrative. There were narratives and there were facts. And I think for all of us, it was sometimes hard to to link the two. Isn't there an overload of information? Isn't that part of the 
part of the issue. One of the reasons we respond uh, by instinct, by gut instinct, is we just can't cope with the amount of information. So it's, it's maybe it's slightly less the sort of, you know, the binary that you're talking about, yeah. just the overload of information. I think that's right. And I think there's an interplay between what people feel instinctively and what they sort of know empirically. And I suppose one concrete example from my world might be a fear of crime. So old people tend to be much more fearful of things like physical attack, being mugged, being robbed in the street, etc. Statistically, they're far less likely to be the victim of those sorts of crimes than younger people. And that's because generally age isn't so much a determinant of being physically attacked. The things that predict whether or not you're going to be the victim of an assault are things like how often you visit a pub, how often you are out at night. And whilst old people visit pubs, of course, the idea about them sort of trekking around a city centre at two in the morning, um, not probably that likely. So in a way, um, it's irrational. Old people's fear of crime is irrational. However, the gut feeling that people have at that age is correct, because were they to be the victim of physical assault, they might be uh, not as good as protecting themselves as a younger person or not as good at running away or might feel they not, don't have the resources to cope. So you could say the fear of crime sort of empirically is inaccurate, but maybe as an instinct, it's quite right. One of the things I think is really interesting is this point about um, complexity um, and the scale at which we all operate now. I mean, I think if you go back and look at um, some of the sort of great texts on military, for example, if you look at Clausewitz, he sees a very clear difference between what he sees as small wars prosecuted by light infantry and then your classic um, nation-state army and how they operate very differently because in the um, the light infantry you have um, both types of thinking um, simultaneously held in the same brain. You have an appreciation of threat, an appreciation of risk, but the appetite um, for innovation potentially. But when you're at an army level, everyone has to become um, a cog with a very specific task. And then the decisions have to cascade up to one very particular individual. And by the time you're cascading up through multiple layers to one individual, the levels of complexity are, I would argue, too great for a wholly rational, statistical, numerical decision to ever be taken. Hmm. And therefore, the art, I would argue, is to gather as much salient information as you can, with the art being what is salient and what isn't, and then on that basis taking a decision and cascading it down. But what is interesting, I think, is that you see changing warfare. I mean, one of the reasons why Daesh has been so successful, arguably, is because um, these are new networked ways of, of conducting war with greater devolution um, in authority, enabling multiple decisions to be taken across geographical space in a way a conventional army might still struggle to counter. And the speed of it means that one has to react more quickly, one's gut instinct Absolutely. Has more of a role. Well, I've got a gut feeling we've reached the halfway point of this discussion. You're listening to Naked Reflections, and my guests this week are Catherine Arnold, Julian Hargreaves, and Kitty Alone. Gut feeling is more than just a loose metaphor. The bacteria in our gut can affect our mood and vice versa. Here's Katerina Johnson again. Research in this whole field of the microbiome at the moment is starting to suggest that the types of bacteria in our gut may 
influence how we feel. But we don't know at the moment how strong this is. So so do they have a, a really big impact on, you know, on our brain or, or is it really just like one tiny piece of the puzzle? I don't want to talk about mucus secretion, but tell us about the vagus nerve because this is relevant here, isn't it? Yes. So, for example, in animal studies, they found that stress actually inhibits the signals that are sent through this vagus nerve. And this actually causes gastrointestinal problems. And also in humans, it's been found that people with Crohn's and IBS, they actually show a reduced function of the vagus nerve. So there's clearly something very profound going on between the mind and the gut. When we're talking about um, a politician taking a, a wartime decision, we tend to talk about gut instinct if we don't think they took the right decision. When we have two people falling in love, we talk about chemistry. Um, when we talk about somebody who's taken a really good decision, we talk about leaping intuition. And actually, we all these things are speaking to the same point, but we've definitely got different nuances that we overlay depending on whether we perceive it as positive or negative. Can gut instinct be an excuse for being intellectually lazy. You're a statistician, Julian. Is there room for gut instinct anywhere? I think in terms of the practice of doing statistics, I think it's often assumed that it's quite a mechanical process so that surveys are undertaken, things, people, uh, items, uh, whatever, are counted and gathered together and uh, analysed. Um, and yeah, people assume that that is a mechanical process. Actually, there's uh, evidence in the better sort of statistical studies of people using their imagination in terms of coming up with questions. Not everything in the social world uh, makes itself available for counting. And uh, one example for my work is if we're thinking about um, levels of racism in society... It's no good to ask people, are you racist? So you have to sort of think imaginatively around the question. One of the questions we've been asking here is, how would a person feel about someone from a different background marrying into their family? Um, I think it's, it's a real tightrope that um, both people engaged in experimental design and statisticians as well, they, they really sort of have this tightrope um, of tension to walk because you can at a very unconscious level as an experimenter influence your participants um, perhaps in the way that you frame your questions so the classic would be well when did you stop hitting your wife um, <laughs> but also just in terms of the way that you lay out your laboratory the certain priming effects that might take place so in all goodwill it may well be that you think that you're conducting an experiment in with cold hard rationality and you know the ghost of Karl Popper on your shoulder but actually hmm. even experimenters have unconscious biases that can influence the way they design and implement their studies and we're moving into a space that I'm fascinated by I'm not sure I have any personal insight but really interested to hear what others think which is how much has all of this, con uh, this conversation been culturally loaded? There's been an implicit sense, even in the question that we've been asked in the second half, that cold, hard rationalism might be a better way of doing things, that um, emotion or other ways of seeing connections within the world is intellectually lazy. And that primacy of the, the intellect, I mean, there's a lovely Einstein quote, which I'm, I'm going to read out because I don't know it off by heart. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honours the servant and has forgotten the gift. Now, 
Oh, as people who yeah. have all signed up to this society, and I would say I'm a firm believer, um, I'm fairly obsessed with fairness, I, I'm you know insistent that everyone who does an interview panel has done unconscious bias training, I'm fully bought into this, but it is still just one way of looking at the world. And if we were looking from a cultural perspective that was much more focused on relationships rather than contract, how would this conversation be different? I think that's a fascinating point, which is that... Yes, we are essentially products of our culture. So we come from Western Europe. We're very much sort of the descendants of the Enlightenment framework. But, I mean, even psychology, for example, has this Western bias. Um, and if you run studies in more collectivist societies, for example, like um, like China, for example, you find that there are very different effects on people's behaviours in terms of how they reason about society, pro-social behaviours. And it's because their society is more sort of based on relational ties rather than individualistic um rationalistic um, in the sense that the intellect is supreme and you're sort of self-determinant. And Catherine, you spend a lot of your time overseas uh, in the foreign office. What examples have you got from, I don't know, Mongolia or mm-hmm. Iraq or on different parts of the world? Well, I think that's the fascinating thing because part of the part of the, the challenge of being a diplomat is on the one hand, you are working firmly within your own system. And that's very distinct from uh, promulgating your own belief that they are different. But you are working within your own system that is um, based on a lot of data, um, that is based on the requirement for um factual evidence-based decision making and you're often interacting uh, with people who want to achieve the same objective as you or are part of that process who are not necessarily as interested in that as you are and so the other half of the art of a diplomat is to be able to sufficiently immerse yourself in the cultural understanding and that is much less rational it is much more about listening to collections of people and frankly, in the absence of any particularly useful tools for doing so, internalising what you've heard, processing it, and often leaping to what the academic world might see as fairly grotesque stereotypes. Julian, I'd like to bring it to one of your areas of expertise, which is criminology. Is there room for gut instinct in this area? I'm thinking about the detective who wanders around the room and Eureka! He's discovered the uh, he's discovered the crime. Or the um, in terms of wider criminology, I think there's been various attempts to counter people's assumptions about the social world. Possibly the best known example is um, Stephen Pinker's book, "The Better Angels of Our Nature." And what he does in the book, to varying degrees of success, actually, I have to say, some parts of the book are great and some are a bit suspect. However, His general argument is that people think the world is a very violent place and becoming more and more violent and has become more violent since the beginning of the 20th century. And what he does using historical records and statistics is to show, for example, that the US are uh, using capital punishment for a lot fewer people than they used to. Um, It shows that fewer people are dying per head of population uh, due to war. Um, and that we're becoming a much more civilised society. And that might be a shock to some people who are thinking perhaps about the Second World War or the Holocaust or the deaths of people in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the book is not without its critics. 
But just uh, on a sort of basic level, he shows, I think, quite effectively that the past was a lot more violent than we perhaps assume instinctively. Gut feeling. Have you ever had the feeling that somebody's watching you? Oh, yes. I think that's one of the most common human experiences. And um, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes perfect sense. It's there to help us that if you are stranded in the middle of a darkened space and you see some or you feel or you hear some twig breaking it's much safer to assume that somebody is there watching you than not assume it because obviously the costs are greater if you don't assume somebody's watching you and actually there's a predator there and then you're eaten that's obviously the end of the road for you and your genetic offspring or your genetic information um but it is, um, it's been certainly a huge area of research in the cognitive science of religion, this idea of the hyperactive agency detection device. And they said they've had various iterations of this device. But basically the idea is that we are fine-tuned to make systematic over-predictions of p- being watched. And many people have argued that from this we get um, not only beliefs in the supernatural, but also it really lays the path for beliefs in God that it's this idea of being watched. I have to confess there are times when I've been in Westminster Abbey, for example, at night when it's closed to the public and there, there really was a sense of being part of a community that you couldn't see. And that is presumably part of your hypo... So it's the Hyperactive Agency Detection Device, or <laughs> HAD, as they um, cleverly call it in psychology. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, we're coming towards the end of this podcast, but I have one question for each of you, which is that moment you've made a snap decision, a feeling, a gut feeling upon which you've made this decision, but then later you row back from it, you decide, actually, no, I was wrong. I absolutely know I make all sorts of snap judgments about people. The only thing I would say in my defence is that I know I do it, and therefore I never act on them. But I quite often husband them um, and look back to see whether they were right or not. And actually, I was thinking about this before coming on today because I've often, I can think of one very good example where I took an instant dislike to somebody. And actually, I would now say they're really quite a close friend. Um, But the reason we're now, but that gut instinct wasn't wrong. The things that I instinctively responded to are still the things in the friendship which I find most complicated. What I've been able to do is put that to one side and build out into other areas of commonality but to some extent I think often they're surprisingly right but the really important thing is that we don't overreact on them. I think you're spot on there Catherine so um, despite the fact that the snap judgment will take perhaps a tenth of a second um, they are surprisingly accurate so they often so psychology has found for example in certain studies that people make very very quick intuitive judgments but they are the same judgments that people will make given much longer to deliberate over them so there is some degree of accuracy in a snap judgment um and i'm exactly the same as you there are friends of mine now that i just think god if you only knew what i first thought of you um it's something that i will obviously have to take to the grave um in a previous life before my um turn to academia i used to work in the music industry and part of my job was to go out in the evening and see unsigned musicians and the snap decisions I made that were wrong about world famous uh, bands um, uh, are many. I saw a very young Coldplay performing in a bar in Manchester and took one look at the singer's mop of curly hair and the way that he tucked his Aaron sweater into his jeans and thought, not for me.
Well, I often think of the um, publishers who took in the manuscripts of J.K. Rowling <laughs> and passed on it. But we've reached the end of this podcast. So thanks to my guests, Catherine Arnold, Julian Hargreaves, and Kitty alone. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Or you can access Naked Reflections from wherever you access your podcasts. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.